Welcome to Shelter Cove. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you find encouragement through today's message. For more information, check us out online at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text at 209-340-3115. Welcome, everybody. I'm Scott Grimm, teaching pastor here at Shelter Cove Community Church. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend our time today. Last week, we started a series entitled Celebrating Truth. I talked about how truth is hard to find. But you and I, as Christians, we know where to find it. We find it right here in the Word of God. This is the foundation of the Christian church. And we talked about why this book matters and why we need to build our lives and our church up on it. Along those lines, today we're going to continue on and we're going to talk about a serious threat that has crept into modern churches uh, unnoticed. It, it, is, it is something that is very, very appealing and yet it threatens the very foundation upon which we stand. Now, it's summertime and that, that's something my kids are excited about for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons they're excited is in regard to breakfast. Let me explain. My wife doesn't tend to buy a lot of sugary cereal, okay? It tends to be along the lines of cornflakes. But in the summer, in the spirit of summer vacation, she has told each of our kids, and we have four of them, you get one box each of any cereal you want. Any kind of sugary goodness that you desire, you want the Fruit Loops, done. You want the Cocoa Puffs, no problem. You want the Apple Jack, whatever it is, I'll buy you your own box of that. Now, when that box is empty... It's back to Cheerios, okay? So enjoy, but take your time. Now, these boxes, they last, well, about a week. Now, before you say, dang, you guys are strict, that's nothing. When I was growing up, my mom, Darla Ray Henson Graham, she did not allow any sugary cereal, okay? Cheerios, cornflakes, that was about all we got, all right? Every once in a while, when things would get a little crazy, we might have some Raisin Bran, okay? But if you were to ask... Young Scott, what his favorite cereal growing up was, I might tell you, I loved grape nuts. I did, and I still do. I like grape nuts. I don't know, maybe it's the crunch. You really feel like you have had to work for your breakfast when you eat grape nuts. Uh, But what always boggled me about grape nuts was the name. What is with the name grape nuts? They're not grapes. They're not nuts. Now, don't send me a bunch of links in my email explaining the origin of the name grape nuts If I really cared to find out, I could figure that out on my own, and I I don't really care. But along those lines, what I want to tell you is that today we're going to talk about something that has an equally perplexing name. You see, there is a wolf in sheep's clothing that has crept into church culture, and it goes by the name Progressive Christianity. And just like grape nuts are not grapes or nuts, Progressive Christianity is neither progressive nor is it in any historical sense Christianity. Now this has arisen in some religious circles that used to be called the emergent church. They now go by this name because uh, it's progressive Christianity. Uh, God and Christianity are constantly evolving. It's presented as, as something new, as something revolutionary. Well, it's not new. It's not progressive, it's regressive. It actually finds its philosophical underpinnings uh, in the 1800s. In Germany, you had a guy named Boltmann, a guy named Schleiermacher. They approached the Bible and the faith in the same way that progressive Christianity approaches it. But it's really older than that because the strategy behind this view 
can be traced not just back to Germany in the 1800s, but all the way back to the dawn of creation in the Garden of Eden. And there is a satanic strategy behind progressive Christianity. Now, as I say that, I'm not trying to imply that anyone who says they're a progressive in church culture, is, that they're somehow a, a closet Satanist. What I'm saying is there is a dark spiritual force at work guiding and manipulating this view in church circles to try to do damage to the foundations of the historic Christian church. I want you to look with me at the ancient strategy that is employed in this progressive ideology. In Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent, that's our timeless enemy, the devil, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we see right away he is crafty. He is cunning. And because he is cunning, he appears as something alluring. He appears as something harmless. I guarantee you, though he is a serpent, this is not the kind of serpent uh, that we think of today. Eve would not stand there and engage in conversation with something hideous, something uh, alarming. He was appealing uh, to her sensibilities. And this is how Satan has always operated in trying to take down the people of God. In the book of Jude, it says certain people have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of of our God. So the church has always been under attack, most effectively, not from outside, but from the inside, from what appears to be harmless. Would you join me in prayer and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of opening your word. I pray that as we study today, you will show us how we can be more alert, how, God, we can be uh, harmless as doves, but wise as serpents when it comes to that which will seek to do damage to the faith and to your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look with me as we continue on here in Genesis 3. Verse 1 goes on. The serpent says to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this is his classic MO, questioning the word of God. Satan's strategy has never changed. It's his tactic in the world, but it's also his tactic in faith communities. And in progressive Christianity, Satan is revisiting his original blueprint from Eden. And I want to show you four major strategies behind progressive Christianity. All right? And number one in your notes is this distort God, discredit His Word, or both. All right? And there are three ways uh, that progressives can do this. Uh, the first way that they seek to distort uh, God or discredit His Word is they, they challenge the idea that the Bible is God's Word. All right? Every organization, every entity that is opposed to Christianity has sought to separate God's people from God's Word. You see that in communist nations like, like China or the old Soviet uh, Russia, right? They would ban Bibles. In cults, they replace the Bible. When they are able to entice people from a Christian community, they replace the Bible with their own man-made religious concoctions in order to reprogram them. They get them away from truth. Well, progressive Christianity has the same goal. It has the same objective, but it does it in a very different way. It does it in a very subtle way, in a way that seems very nice. They don't criticize the Bible. They don't seek to ban the Bible. What they do is they seek to reframe the Bible. Uh, one of the most well-known Christian uh, progressives is Rob Bell, very, very popular author. In one of his books, he's on record saying that the Bible is not written by God. Uh, rather, it's, it's a library 
reflecting how human beings have understood the divine. It's a record of of human experience. He says what you're reading is someone's perspective that reflects the time and place in which they lived. It's not God's perspective. It's theirs. And so progressives reframe the Bible as a human document. Because if it's human, it's, it's it's like everything else that's out there. And if it's human, it loses its power. And we talked about this last week. The progressives claim that the Bible doesn't make any claims to be divine, to be inspired. Au contraire, Paul says in the New Testament, this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And countless times in the Old Testament it says, and the word of the Lord came to, insert prophet's name. Repeatedly the Bible claims to be from God. But progressives deny this. Secondly, what they do is they challenge the idea that that we can understand the Bible. All right, and, and this is relating to the doctrine of perspicuity, that the Bible can be comprehended. They say that, that it's from God, uh, or even if it were from God, we're not God, therefore we can't possibly understand the Bible. Now this is, this is an issue that's always been there. In the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church did not believe that the common man could understand the Scriptures, that, that we needed priests, we needed bishops to, to read the Scripture and then explain to the great unwashed what it meant. Enter Martin Luther and the reformers and they said, not so fast, my friend. And they countered that, yes, indeed, the Bible claims that it can be understood. And they believe that because of Psalm 19, which says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. They said, Psalm 119 says, the unfolding of your words uh, gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We got any simpletons like me out there? The Bible brings light. And how is it that a simpleton can understand the Bible? It's not because I'm brilliant. It's because I have the Holy Spirit living in me. And this is a spiritual document. And 1 Corinthians 2 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. They are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you have the Holy Spirit, you now have the potential to discern Scripture. You might not understand it right away, but you now have the possibility to understand it. So progressives deny the Bible is God's word. They deny that we can understand it. And third, they may choose this option. Present the idea that only portions of the Bible are inspired. Only some of the Bible is from God. Some of them are not opposed to saying that the Bible is God's word, but it's only God's word uh, in certain portions. And uh, this has always been how people operate, even in a practical sense. There are some of you that are going to amen all through this sermon, and then during the week you're going to live however you want. You're going to do what you think is right. Thomas Jefferson famously had a Bible that he assembled himself. He cut passages out of other Bibles and glued them into his own book, and he read what he wanted to read. Today there's something called the Jesus Seminar, made up of modern theologians and scholars, and they get together and they pontificate about what Jesus likely said or what he likely did not say, and they conveniently leave out all of the doctrinal things that they disagree with, like the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture or the deity of Christ. And this is how progressives approach the Bible. Now, we go back to Satan's strategy, and in verse 2 of Genesis 3, the woman said to the serpent, this is to her credit, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, uh, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Uh, But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And this is the second part of the strategy of progressive Christianity. In your notes, number two, 
deny essential doctrine. Now, you'll notice the sequence. First, they call into question the Bible as God's word. Now, they deny essential doctrine. And that, that, that sequence is very important. Now, there's no more essential doctrine than the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of inerrancy, of, of perspicuity of Scripture. But once you have undermined that, as Satan initially did, now you can dismiss any major doctrine you want. How can you dismiss doctrine? Because all doctrine is found in Scripture. And if you question Scripture, then you can dismiss the doctrines that are found in Scripture. It's, it's, it's very, very natural. The serpent says to Eve, you will not surely die. What, what are the implications of that statement? He's saying, well, there's no such thing as sin. What you have perceived God as saying is sin, that's not, that's not really sin. And if there's no sin, well, there are no consequences for sin. And if there are no consequences for sin, there is no need for redemption. So you have, you've dealt with a significant basis for all of Christianity. The, the sinfulness of man, the, the wages of sin, and God's means to restore us because of our fall into sin. So if you've removed man's need for redemption, you are now mucking with a very important doctrine. It's the doctrine of salvation, the, the doctrine of soteriology. And if you are doing that, you are denying that the reason that Christ died on the cross was to pay the penalty for your sin. You know what we call Christ's sacrifice on the cross? We call that the atonement. We call that the atonement. And there, are, there are a lot of views on the atonement, but the one that is most historically orthodox that we adhere to it here at Shelter Cove, we call that penal substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that Christ died on the cross as a payment for our sin, as a substitute. He died in our place to pay the penalty of the law, which we could not pay. Only he could pay it for us. Progressives, they can't fathom that. They can't get their heads around that. They hate the doctrine of the atonement. First of all, if that were true, that would mean that sin is a big deal to God, and we've already said it's not as progressives. But secondly, this notion that God would demand a, a, a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, well, that would make God bloodthirsty. That would make God violent. And this whole idea that, that He would send His own Son, that He would see fit to to sacrifice his son on the cross. Why, that's, that's cosmic child abuse, they say. Well, that's, that's not in the nature of God. How could God be that kind of a God? Why would we ever worship that kind of a God? And so they reason, well, Jesus must have died for another reason. He must have gone to the cross for another reason. And there are a lot of alternative theories of the atonement, but the one that appeals to progressives the most is called the example theory. And it's simply this. The reason Jesus died on the cross, they say, is not to reconcile you. It's not to redeem you. It's not, not to restore you or to forgive you for anything. It's to inspire you. It's to show you how to live. That his sacrifice was a demonstration of our need to be more selfless, to be more loving, to be more obedient, uh, to, to do good works, all right? And so just like that, uh, we're going back to this notion that what the faith is all about is earning the favor of God by doing good things, by being selfless, by being uh, obedient, by being gentle. Well, that's not progressive, that's regressive. 
The Jews already had that ideology. They had manipulated the law into this thing whereby you earn heaven by doing good works. The only difference with progressives is that their idea of heaven is it's not something in the afterlife, it's in the here and now. It's the best of all possible worlds and it's achievable through good works. Heaven is achievable by doing good deeds. That's regressive. Folks, that's the opposite of Christianity. That's the opposite of grace. Now, is the atonement violent? Oh, you better believe it's violent. But is that counter to the nature of God? No, because God's righteousness requires sacrifice. It's just that His means of satisfying that righteous requirement, that's not cosmic child abuse because He didn't just coldly, callously send His Son to abuse Him on the cross instead of going Himself. No, if you believe that, you are denying another essential doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. God is three in one. He's Father, Son, Spirit. They are of the same essence. They're all God. So God didn't send someone else to the cross. God got on the cross Himself in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. But you see, that violates, that violates a basic view of progressive Christianity. You see, they don't really think of Christ as being divine. They don't think of Christ as being God. Christ was merely a good, moral, human teacher. They say, I don't have to believe in the deity of Christ to follow His teachings. I don't have to, to believe in the atonement for my sin to follow the teachings of Christ. He is a good, moral instructor. Well, there are a lot of good moral people out there. There's a lot of good moral teachers out there. Why don't we follow and obey them? Uh, there, is a, there is a book by Philip Gully. Philip Gully was a progressive thinker, and he wrote a book that detailed the basic tenets of progressive Christianity. And uh, Michael Kruger calls his book the, the Ten Commandments of progressive Christianity. But one of them I've got here on the screen for you. And he says that Jesus is a model for living more than an object of worship. Now, we would agree that Jesus is a model for living. If, we, if there's no practical application in our lives from our faith, that's a pretty hollow faith. I mean, if we were only uh, gathering to, to physically worship and, and there was no life application, uh, we, we wouldn't be very authentic. If we just came in here and sang, uh, you know, Waymaker every weekend, we, we wouldn't be very deep. So yes, Jesus is our model, but why is He our model? I mean, is He just a good man that we follow? Is He essentially Gandhi? No, you see what the statement uh, boils down to is it's stripping Christ of the glory that He is due. It's making Him just a, 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 a deep moral teacher. C.S. Lewis dealt with that. He said, look, you, this nonsense about Christ being a good moral teacher, we must dispense with that. Uh, he didn't intend for us to think that way. He is one of three things and three things only based on His claims. He is either a lunatic, He's a crazy person, by saying he's God, he's on the level of somebody who thinks he's a poached egg, or he's a liar, he is intentionally spewing things that he knows not to be true and therefore not worthy of our obedience, or the only remaining possibility, he's exactly who he says he is. He's Lord. He's God. Did Jesus claim to be God? You better believe it. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was I am, ego, a me in the Greek. The Jews knew exactly what his claim was, which is why they picked up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. This is what progressive Christianity belittles. Now, the serpent goes on. Look at verse 5. It says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good 
and evil. Let me ask you a question. Is any of that true? Is what the serpent saying to Eve there true? Yes, if she eats of that tree, her eyes will be opened. She will be like God in the fact that she will know good and evil. That's what the tree is called, the knowledge of good and evil. It's, it's all there in the label. Uh, but this feeds into another stratagem of progressive thought. And it's number three in your notes. Disguise falsehood by wrapping it in truth. The devil always does this. He wraps a lie in truth and he makes it attractive. Every tenet of progressive Christianity has a nugget of truth. It's got a morsel that is partly true. Um, if you were to look at Gully's book that I referenced before, and I'm just going to walk through some of those as quickly as I can. In that book, he makes this statement. He says, affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Well, there's some truth in that. We are to affirm people's potential. Every person uh, has potential. But we need to clarify something. Uh, your potential is found in Christ. It's not in yourself. Your potential, the only thing good in you, and by good I mean something that is of eternal value, the only good is related to the righteousness of Jesus. Now, how do you attain that righteousness? You do it by acknowledging your brokenness, your sinful nature, and trusting in Christ. When He indwells you, now you've got real potential. Here's another statement Gully makes. He says, the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. You see how nice these sound? Reconciliation. Well, who's going to argue with reconciliation? We, we should all enjoy that. The Bible talks a lot about that. The Bible talks about forgiveness. Uh, Luke 17, the Bible talks about removing hostility between groups in Ephesians. Uh, but what we see in the progressive environment is that reconciliation is impossible unless we eradicate the notion of making judgments. And making judgments is defined by taking a stand on certain behaviors, on certain moral issues, on addressing sinful lifestyles. Have you ever done that? And then somebody came back at you and they, they hit you with the old judge not lest you be judged? Or, you know, let him who is without sin cast the first stone? I mean, if you have ever pointed out that homosexuality is counter to God's best, well, then you get a lecture on loving gay people as though uh, acknowledging that homosexuality is wrong is somehow unloving or that reconciliation is somehow possible without addressing wrongdoing. Look, let me tell you what, what reconciliation God is preoccupied with. It's not reconciliation so much between human beings and other human beings. It's between humans and God. He desires first and foremost that we all be reconciled to Him. And that is done by acknowledging our evil deeds, by trusting in Christ who is holy and blameless and enters us and therefore we can be presented as holy, uh, as holy and blameless. We must be reconciled to God. And then there's this statement, uh, gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Well, I think gracious is a good thing to be. We should, we should all uh, pursue graciousness. But, but listen, in 2010, there was a poll taken in America, and the majority of people polled said that, that the most respected spiritual leader in America was Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey. Not a theologian, not a pastor, not, not an evangelist, not a missionary. Oprah. Why? She's gracious. She's nice. She's relatable. She's generous. You get a car and you get a car and you get a... Some of us would enjoy it if we came into church and, and we all got a car. 
Hey, some churches may be like that, unfortunately. Uh, but, but what this statement does is that it belittles theology. Sure, we are to be gracious. We're taught to be kind and loving and gentle in Scripture. But, but this belittles any kind of theological pursuit that we value doctrine as, as though that makes us somehow uh, closed-minded or, or, or mean-spirited or, or, or dogmatic or divisive. Our goal cannot be to abstain from being divisive. That can't be the totality of your worth in the Christian church. You, you are going to come across as divisive if you speak the truth that's in the Word. If you are proclaiming the truth that is in this book and someone doesn't get offended, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. I'm not saying it should be your goal to be offensive to people, to hurt people's feelings, but I'm telling you that this book is offensive to the worldly mindset. And we just need to uh, accept that. Now here's a big one in progressive thought on your screen here. Inviting questions is more important than supplying answers. Now are questions important? Absolutely questions are important. Anybody who comes to my Bible study knows I value questions, but what is the purpose of a question? Is it not to find an answer? Yet progressives value questions more than they value answers. They're really not interested so much in answers. And I think that the motivation there is because they want to position themselves as humble seekers and, and not, you know, self-righteous know-it-alls. And they value this exploration of the truth. Uh, and, and, and after all, truth is subjective. What is truth, really? Who's to say what truth is? What is truth? You know who asked that question in Scripture? It wasn't Jesus. It was Pontius Pilate. Jesus said, I am the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? The great existential question. And so here you've got progressive Christianity, which, which bases its philosophy not on the words of Christ, but on the words of Pontius Pilate right there. When we say there's no such thing as truth, the only way you come to that conclusion is, is, is if you are asserting that this is not the inspired word of God. If this is the inspired word of God, we can know truth. So when you say we can't know truth, what you're really saying is, I don't believe in those truths. Here's another progressive thought. Encouraging pers the personal search is more important than group uniformity. Encouraging the personal search. Uh, um, now, uh, I don't believe that Christianity stifles free thinking. All right. Nor do I believe that, that Christianity is all about conformity to some club. But, but what we should be preoccupied with is not conformity to, to other human beings, but conformity to Christ. Uh, the statement here, um, it gets points for the notion of a journey. The Christian life is indeed a journey. We call that sanctification, but that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about a personal journey, that I am on a journey of exploration for myself. To determine what I believe. That's what progressive Christians value. Rob Bell, when he started out, people didn't really know what he believed. He was, he was rather nebulous, frankly, about it. And the reason was, he was on a journey. He was trying to decide what he believed. Now, by the time he published his book, Love Wins, which, which uh, made the case that God doesn't send anybody to hell, he was, for the first time, definitively showing his cards theologically. And since then, he's continued on that journey. He's picked up steam and he's come out with another book saying that the Bible is, is written by people. It's not man-made or it's not God-made. It's man-made. All right? He's progressing. 
uh, all right? Um, I, I would say you give him another 10, 20 years, he might come out and say, I'm an agnostic. I don't even believe in God, or I don't know that there's a God. And that's where this journey logically leads. Here's another progressive tenet. Meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. <laughs> Meeting needs, well, obviously that's important. I think we would agree with that. The first church, they met one another's needs. There was not a needy person among them. They had all things in common. So, so meeting needs is important. But, but this statement undermines institutions. And by that word, it means the church. You see, most of the people in the progressive Christian community, they, they, they have come from a church somewhere that gave them a bad taste in their mouth. They, they thought of these churches as, as being too commercial, too, too corporate. And there are churches like that, sadly. I don't think churches should be run like a Fortune 500 company. But these people have such disdain for the church as an organized religious structure and they pursue fluidity. They, they pursue something that's a little more loose. And they say, hey, let's just keep it simple. Let's just meet the needs of people. Let's just feed the hungry. Let's just clothe the naked. Let's just uh, give shelter to the homeless. Let's help the poor. And that becomes the central message of the church and it shifts the gospel into this social thing. Folks, the the gospel can't be about meeting people's physical needs. What is the gospel? The gospel, quite plainly, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is simply this. Christ was crucified for our sin. According to the scripture, he was buried and he rose again, according to the scripture. That's it. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these are the tenets of progressive thought. The fourth and final part of the strategy here is this in your notes deceive by delighting modern sensibilities modern sensibilities is what it's all about i want you to look at what what happens in verse 6 in genesis 3 it says so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate she saw and it was a delight to the eyes. It appealed to her modern sensibilities. This is what progressive thought does today. It appeals to what people value. What the culture tells us is important. Rob Bell says we got to make the gospel more broad. We got to make it warmer. We got to make it kinder. We got to make it popular for contemporary culture. And in, in Gully's book, another tenet is this. Peacemaking is more important than power. Well, peacemaking appeals to our modern sensibilities. Let's have peace. Let's be at peace. All right? And, and, and people shouldn't abuse power. That appeals to our modern sensibilities as well. But again, you've got people in the progressive movement that come from church where they got hurt, where people abused power, and that was wrong. 1 Peter 5 warns against that. Uh, we're not to be domineering as pastors. But this statement undercuts church authority to address bad theology, to rebuke people for, for openly living in ways that are counter to the Bible. And so the allegation here is that when a pastor does that, that they are out of line, that they are being heavy-handed, that they are somehow being authoritarian. Folks, there's a difference between authoritarianism and biblical authority. Uh, Titus, uh, Paul says to Titus, he says... Um, that he, the pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those 
who contradict it. I mean, Jesus, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, you know, he pointed out she'd been married five times and she was currently shacking up with somebody who wasn't her husband. And yet, this is the same man who said, my peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. The peace that they're talking about is not the peace of Christ who, who will, will willingly rebuke those who are running counter to God's word. And then here's one that's, that's rather pointed at cancel, or at current culture, rather. It's this, we should care more about love and less about sex. Well, obviously love is central to our faith. If we don't have love, Paul says we're a clanging symbol, right? So we got to have love. But what this statement boils down to is, is it's telling people what they want to hear. People who are engaged in a, a sexual lifestyle that is, that is biblically sinful, if they're living with someone who they are not married to, if they're, if they're engaged in a homosexual a lifestyle, if they're a trans person, what this statement is saying is do it, do whatever makes you happy as long as you're loving. We value love more than we are concerned with your sexual proclivities. Just be loving. And this is Satan's deceptive strategy to, to elevate uh, someone's uh, so-called moral values so that we don't pay attention to whether or not they're engaging in sexual sin. Any TV show that you turn on today, there's a gay person on there, there's a trans person on there, there's a heterosexual person who sleeps with whoever they want, but these characters are presented as relatable, as noble, as virtuous, and when we watch it, our human instinct is to, is to, uh, to say, well, how could their behavior be so bad if such wonderful people are doing it? Maybe I need to rethink my position on this behavior. And it causes us to question our views. And there's a premise at work here. It's basically saying that, that what makes an activity bad is that jerks are doing it. But what, what makes an activity uh, sinful is not, is not how we perceive the people who are engaged in it. It's whether or not it runs counter to God's character. So yes, nice people can sin. But in this statement, there's also this idea that's woven in that says that God isn't really that preoccupied with, with sin. Sexual sin is just not that big a deal to God. Does that describe the God of the Bible? No, the God of the Bible cares deeply about sexuality, about sin. Is that because He's mean? Is that because He's some kind of a cosmic killjoy? No, it's because He's holy. And it's because when we try to redefine something that He created, like sex, then we are undermining and damaging important institutions that he also created, like marriage, like the family. And then finally, progressives hold to this. Uh, life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Have you ever heard somebody say, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good? Okay, and, and really when they say that, what they're saying is that, you know, we shouldn't be so preoccupied with Christ coming back that uh, we ignore our present responsibility on the earth. And there is some truth to that, but I think that's an overly simplistic statement. And, and what, the, what the progressives mean with their statement is that the notion of the afterlife is not something that we can know because we can't really understand the Bible. Therefore, we can't possibly know what to expect with regard to the afterlife. And what really matters is this life, what's happening right here, right now, sheltering the poor, 
meeting people's needs, healing the hurting, and all of that matters to God, which it, it, it does. But they ignore the thing that matters most to God, that which is eternal. And so they say, what matters is not our sin. What matters, the, most, the biggest problem facing us is, is inequality. The biggest problem facing us is poverty. It's disease. It's systemic racism. It's all of these things. And they spend their time addressing that instead of addressing eternity right there. Philip Gully says if the church were Christian, we would do what Jesus did, which is equip one another to live better in this world and stop fretting about the next one. That sounds nice, but you know what Jesus said? He says... In Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Is hell real? Because progressives don't want you to think about hell, talk about hell, emphasize hell. You know who talked about hell more than anybody in the Bible? Jesus. Hell is real. There are people there now and people will continue to go there. And the thing that will send so many people to hell is a religious system based on doing good moral deeds and nothing more. And that is what progressive Christianity boils down to. And this is the ultimate hidden goal. It's deconstruction of faith. You see so many people in the media who who were once in the public eye as Christians and they have deconstructed. They have They have come to a conclusion that they don't really believe the Bible. They don't really know if there's a God or maybe they've rejected the idea of God whatsoever. And and that's the the end result of progressive thought. Progressive Christianity is not converting any unbelievers. I promise you that. Most of the people in progressive communities are disillusioned Christians who come from churches where they were hurt and they gather together to talk about their hurt. Satan was not preoccupied with uh, illuminating Adam and Eve, bringing them into a closer relationship with God, understanding his true purpose, his true word, his true promises. His goal was to separate them from God. And that is his goal with progressive Christianity. Certain people have crept into the church undetected, and it's not of God. How do we guard against it? Well, when Jude said that people have crept in unnoticed, the context of that, in the previous verse, he says, I found it necessary to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. How do we combat progressive ideology? We stay rooted in this right here. We stay rooted in the Word of God. This is the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. We stay immersed in this personally and collectively. And if you want to know how you can get the most out of God's word, let me just encourage you, if you're a member here at Shelter Cove, practically speaking, we've got a process called Pathway. It's a very practical thing. It's just a tool that you can take advantage of, of deeper discipleship, learning the ropes, learning the basics so that you can become rooted And you can stand against that which your enemy intends for your harm. Be alert, be aware, and go in peace.